What is the most expensive thing that you own? I'm not sure what it might be for you. Um, In my estimation, some of the most expensive things in life are those which cost us nothing. Because of our attitude towards them, our mindset to that which doesn't cost us something. Tonight we're going to talk about cost and how it impacts us as we study, continue in our study of the Gospel of Luke in this series called The Life of Luke. Some of the most costly things in life are that those things which cost us nothing. We have in our home a uh, laptop. It's a, it's a MacBook Air. Now, if you're a computer guy, you understand that Macs are oftentimes considerably more expensive uh, than a comparable PC. Um, The reason that we saved our nickels and dimes for the MacBook is because we've had the MacBook Air for 10 years, and it runs like it did the day we bought it. It's a closed system. It's designed to run for a long time. It doesn't get bogged down with malware and viruses. But it was more costly, you understand. When, um, when you think about your career, someone studying to be a brain surgeon, it will cost them an immense amount of time and dollars to get to that point when they're ready to operate and they've been trained to operate on somebody. But in one, one surgery of several hours, they will make several hundred thousand dollars, maybe more. Uh, they'll... they'll earn a great deal, but what it took them to get to that point was a a considerable cost. We have, uh, in in the church, uh, you you know, and maybe you're connected to it right now, Wi-Fi. Several years ago, when we made the decision to get Wi-Fi routers, we had a choice of one of two directions. One was a cheaper one, uh, but it never worked. And people were constantly saying, we can't get on the Wi-Fi, we can't get on the Wi-Fi. And when they could get on the Wi-Fi, it was too slow. And so we had gone with the cheaper one, but it actually cost us way more because we had to replace the cheaper one. When you think about things in your life, some of the most expensive decisions you can make are to choose things which cost you very little or which cost you nothing. Thomas Paine famously said, what we esteem too uh, I'm going to get what we obtain too cheaply, we esteem too lightly. We have a whole generation that's ready to move our, our, our nation into socialism because they haven't, it, it's been too cheap for them to get here. They've lived too comfortably. They see no problem. They, they, they understand nothing of the cost that was given by previous generations to get to where we were. You, you understand, they don't understand the value of it because they didn't pay the cost. Sometimes we have to be very careful in giving consideration of seeking out the cheapest option because sometimes that's the most costly. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. In fact, the most valuable and the costliest decision you'll ever make is what we're going to talk about tonight. Luke chapter 14, if you're following along in the scriptures, Luke chapter 14 verse 25 is where our text will be as we talk about counting the cost. Luke writes these words, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone 
comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he laid the foundation, he's not able to finish. All who see it began to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, we will not sit down and first deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is a, yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore... Any one of you who cannot renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You see, the first thing that we notice when Jesus talks about following him is that following him is a costly decision. In the PC Mac debate, it would be buying the Mac. It will cost you more up front. Why? It's more valuable. Jesus did not want crowds and fans. He was not concerned in the least bit about how big the crowd size was. What he wanted was more committed followers. Turn a chapter, one chapter back, Luke chapter 13, verse 23 and 24. He went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord... Well, those who are saved be few, and he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door, for I tell you, many will seek to enter and will not be able. Why? Why will they not be able to enter? Because the cost is too great. Because there are too many not willing to pay the cost. It'll cost you, well, don't want to jump ahead of ourselves too much, but... There is great value in following Jesus. I assume a Sunday night crowd would give me an amen in that. There is great value in following Jesus. Uh, but you see, saying amen is, is the easy part. It's the laying down of your life every day. Following Jesus, if it's the most valuable thing, must then be the costliest thing we've ever done. You see, sometimes we think about following Jesus just in terms of of the scope of our lives. This is, this is kind of what the rhythm series is addressing on Sunday morning. God never intended your fellowship of Jesus to be in just one little segment for a couple of hours in a week. He intended that to be the part and parcel of every part of who you are, your identity, every, everything that you do, everything that you touch, yields itself to Jesus Christ. Paul said, let every cat thought be taken captive to Christ. Jesus was, was, was not a con man. He, he, was, he was not giving us a bill of goods. He, he, was, not present, he was not doing a bait and switch. He, he was quite upfront about the cost. And sometimes we don't always hear that. But Jesus was quite upfront about the cost of following Jesus. The cost of, of following Jesus, you see, is your own life. It will cost you quite dearly. Getting on the altar, laying your life down, not in a physical martyrdom, but in a martyrdom of the self. 
living sacrifices is this Romans 12 idea that we walk about, that we breathe, that we live our lives, but every moment of our lives is lived in sacrifice to him. You know Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I've used his quotes a couple of times, probably the most famous one is, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. But there's another one that I really like on the subject of discipleship. He says, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of the church. We are fighting for costly grace. Because when we think about cheap grace, we just have no, I mean, there's no, we don't think about putting any of ourselves into it. The moment church or discipleship or following Jesus becomes the slightest bit inconvenient to our lives, it immediately takes a second seat to whatever else is most important in our lives. We're fighting for a costly grace, that which costs us something. Uh, Probably you're familiar with Financial Peace University, and we offer that class every year, and uh, there's cost to that class. That's not because we're, we're, we're trying to make, you know, oogles and oogles of money. It's not any, anything to do with that. The kits cost us. Uh, we basically just have the cost of the kits. But there are some people who are in such a financial condition, they can't afford the cost of the class, although on average people turn their financial condition around about $8,000 to the positive. So we will offer and say often, Tell us, if you, if you want to go to the class, if you need the class, if you know it's necessary, tell us what you can pay, and we'll figure out a way to cover the rest. And we do that. We have generous folks. There's a reason for that. Folks at the, the, the Dave Ramsey organization say, even if your church can cover the cost of it 100%, you'll be unwise to give 100%. If you, if you offer that class for free, the attendance will suffer massively. Why? They have no skin in the game. It didn't cost them anything. They didn't, they didn't make a sacrifice to attend. Obviously, it's a sacrifice of their time to some degree, but they didn't have any skin in the game. Well, that's the same idea. Jesus says, listen, you want to follow me, it's going to cost you everything. You're going to have to have all of your skin, and not just all of your skin, but all of your soul in the game. That's, that's all in. Jesus was wholeheartedly against half-hearted followers. He didn't have time for that. And it wasn't certainly going to enable the kingdom to grow and spread like it needed to. Jesus knew what they were going to face. Jesus knew what the disciples would be up against. Brian Middleton talked about on Wednesday night, uh, all of the apostles that would face martyrdom. He knew that, Jesus knew that they would face that. He needed them to be all in and committed to the king and his kingdom more than anything else. And he needed the other followers that would follow him as well. Luke chapter 16, verse 13, which we're not ahead. I realize we're jumping just a little bit to uh, Luke chapter 16, verse 13, is a little bit ahead of where we are in the text. But Jesus said, no servant can have two masters. He will hate the one and love the other. Or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You see, as someone who, who has the mindset that I can have Jesus, and I can, I can serve Jesus, I can follow Jesus, I can do what he wants, but I can also serve my money. 
Now, don't misunderstand. It doesn't say you cannot serve God and have money. It says you cannot serve God and serve money. So we have to, we have to understand the distinction. Jesus knew that when it came to having a master, we can only have one. And not selfishly, righteously, he wants to be the one. He's the only one worth following. He's the only one worthy of making the sacrifice. And so compared to Jesus Christ, whatever it is that you might fill in the blank with, your attitude is such that compared to Christ, I hate that. Compared to knowing Christ, I despise that. Because I love him so much more. Not in the book of Luke, but turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, verse 4 through 8. This wonderful example of this attitude. The Apostle Paul wrote of all the, the things which he had. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And and then he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, but... Ever gain I had, this verse 7, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing, and if, you, if you've got a pen or pencil, underline, circle, and highlight this, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Now look, he's going to talk about the cost, but what did he start by talking about? The worth. For I, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. You see, you see, Paul understood that it was going to cost him some things. Indeed, it cost him deeply. But those paled in comparison to the worth of knowing Christ. Jesus himself guess, couldn't follow himself, but his attitude was exemplary for us, praying in the garden. And he says to his own father, Luke twenty-two forty-one. he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. He expressed his will. And then the next word in the ESV is this. Nevertheless, it's not a word we use too much anymore, but, but Jesus, of course, he wasn't speaking English, I understand. But nevertheless, it's a, it's a good word. It's a good translation because he understood that his will, will needed to yield to the Father's. His will was the lesser 
And so the translation, nevertheless. Are you, are you that way with your own life and with your will and with your wants and with your desires and with your plans and with your goals and with your objectives? Are those lesser things? Jesus says, nevertheless, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The following Jesus is absolutely the most costliest decision, and yet it is the most valuable decision you'll ever make. Paying the cost is, as such, a crucial decision. It's not, a, it's not, it's not the kind of a thing where you go, eh, I don't know if I want to count the cost. I'm not ready to do it. Crowds came to Jesus. But you see, the crowds had no desire to commit to Jesus or to pay the cost to follow him. What's the point of that? Look, Luke chapter 9, we've already been through Luke chapter 9 now in our study. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, but we'll go back there for a review. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. I, I like Luke's translation there the best of all the versions of that verse because, because it reminds us Following Jesus is not a one-time decision where you come down and you profess his name and you put him on the water. I mean, it's, it's a daily, and that's why I love the, the symbol of baptism, because it's, it's a death and a burial, you see. It's a, it's a, it's a dying of self, and that's going to happen if we're following Jesus, not just today, but tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and every day and every hour of every day for the rest of our lives until Jesus returns or until the Lord calls us home. We are called to deny ourselves and take up the cross and follow him. All followers are called to follow Jesus to the cross, which is, as Jesus used it, not a beautiful, inspirational, religious symbol of hope and faith. A cross was a public spectacle of death. It was a humiliation, slow and painful and agonizing. And everyone who looked to it said, I... I mean, the reason for the cross was to make a public spectacle so Rome could send a message to everyone who saw from near and far that you don't rebel against Caesar or against Caesar's authority. And the cross for us means we yield in every way to the ultimate king and the ultimate authority. And may everyone who looks to us, who sees us, who hears us speaks, who, who, who follows us on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, see in us a sacrificed life, a life that has yielded in every way to him. We have a little time, so I'll tell you a story. There's a, uh, I'm a big fan of C.S. Lewis and his writings. One of his uh, well-known writings is the book called The Great Divorce. It's the story of a journey of people who are, uh, as, as Lewis tells it in this uh, image of people moving into heaven, traveling to get there. And as they go, they, each of them face different challenges as they go along. And there's one part that I think goes well with our, our subject tonight. So I want to share that with you. I saw coming towards us a ghost who carried something on his shoulder. Like all ghosts, he was unsubstantial, but they differed from one different as smokes differ from each other. Some had been whitish. This one was dark and oily. What sat on his shoulder was a little red lizard. 
and it was twitching its tail like a whip and whispering things in his ear. We caught sight of him. He turned his head to the reptile with a snarl of impatience. Shut up, I tell you, he said. It wagged its tail and continued to whisper to him. He ceased snarling and presently began to smile. And then he turned and he started to limp away from the mountains. Off so soon, said a voice. The speaker was more or less a human in shape, but larger than a man and so bright that I could hardly see him. His presence smote on my eyes and on my body too, uh, for there was heat coming off of him as well as light, like the morning sun at the beginning of a tyrannous summer day. Yes, I'm off, said the ghost. Thanks for your hospitality, but it's no good, you see. I told this little chap here, as he indicated to the lizard, that there he'd have to be quiet if he came, which he insisted on doing. Of course, his stuff can't be here. I understand that. I realize that, but he won't stop. I'll just have to make him go home. Hmm. Would you like me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit, an angel, as I now understood. Of course I would, said the ghost, then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Ah, ah, look out, you're burning me, keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Don't you want him killed? You didn't say anything about killing him at first, said the ghost. I hardly meant to bother you with anything drastic like that. It's the only way, said the angel whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, that's a further question. I mean, I'm quite open to consider it, but it's a new point. I mean, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it, because up here, well, it's a bit embarrassing. Uh, May I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss it later. No, there is no time. May I kill it? Please, that never meant to be such a nuisance, such a problem. Please, really, don't don't bother. I mean, look, it's, it's gone to sleep on its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think that's the slightest bit necessary. I mean, for sure, I'll be able to keep him in order now. I think the gradual process would be much better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Don't you think so? Well, I think you're what you said very carefully. Let me think about it. I honestly will. In fact, uh, I'll let you kill it now. But as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling frightfully well today. It would be most silly to do it now. I mean, I'd need to be in good health for the operation some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. All days are now. Get back! You're burning me! How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if if you killed him. It is not so. Well, you're hurting me now. Well, I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Oh, I know you think I'm a coward, but it isn't that. Really, it isn't. I say, let me run back to buy tonight's bus and get an opinion from my own doctor. I'll come back the moment I can. This moment... Contains all moments. Why are you torturing me? Why are you jeering me? How can I let you tear me into pieces if I wanted you to help me? Why didn't you just kill the thing without asking me before I even knew it, before I could think about it? It would be all over by now if you had. I cannot kill it against your will. It is impossible. Have I your permission? The angel's hands were almost closed on the lizard, but not quite. Then the lizard began chattering to the ghost so loud that I could even hear what he was saying. Be careful, it said. He can do what it says. He can kill me. One fatal word from me, and he will. And then you will be without me forever and ever. And that's not natural. How could you live? You could be only sort of a ghost, not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but but it isn't for us. Yes, yes. I, I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams. But aren't they far better than nothing? And I'll be so, so good. I promise I'll be quiet. I admit sometimes I've gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams and sweet and fresh and almost innocent. You might even say quite innocent. Have I your permission, said the ghost. The angel to the ghost. I know it will kill me. It won't, but supposing it did, 
You're right. It would be better than to dead than to, than, than to try to live with this creature. Then I may blast you. Go on. Can't you kill it? Do, do whatever you like. God help me. God help me. Next moment. The ghost gave a scream of agony such as I had never heard on earth. The burning one closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it, and while it bit and writhed and then flung it broken-backed on the turf. How? That's done for me, gasped the ghost, reeling backwards. For a moment, I could make out nothing distinctly. Then I saw between me and the nearest bush unmistakably solid, but growing every moment solider, the upper arm and the shoulder of the man. The brighter and still stronger his legs and hands grew, the neck and the golden head materialized while I watched. And if my attention had not wavered, I would have seen the actual completing of a man, an immense man, naked, not much more smaller than the angel. What distracted me was the fact that at the same moment something seemed to be happening to the lizard. And at first I thought the operation had failed. So far from dying, the creature was still struggling, even growing bigger as it struggled. And as it grew, it changed. It grew harder and Stronger, its hinder parts grew rounder. The tail still flickering became a tail of hair that, fl- hair that flickered. Suddenly I, I, I start, stumbled back, rubbing my eyes. What stood before me was the greatest stallion I had ever seen. Silvery white with mane, tail of gold. It was smooth and shining, rippled with swells of flesh and muscle, whinnying and stamping with its hoofs, and each stamp shook the land and made the t- trees shake. The new man turned and clasped the new horse's neck. It nosed his bright body, horse and master, breathed into each other's nostrils. The man turned from it, flung himself at the feet of the burning one, and embraced them. And when I rose, I thought, when he rose, I thought his face shone with tears, but it may have been only the liquid love and brightness which flowed from him. I had not long to think about it. Turning in his seat, he waved a farewell and nudged the stallion with his heels, and they were off before I knew well what was happening. And there, there was riding, if you like. I came out as quickly as I could from among the bushes to follow them with my eyes, but they were already a long ways off like a shooting star among the green plain and along the foothills into the mountains. And then, like a star, I saw them winding up, scaling what seemed impossible steeps quicker every moment till dim till near the dim brow of the landscape, so high that I must strain my neck to see them. They vanished bright themselves into the rose brightness of that everlasting morning. Do you understand this all, my son? said the teacher. I don't know about all, sir, he said. Am I rightly thinking that the lizard really turned into a horse? Aye, but it was killed first. You'll not forget that part of the story. I'll try not to, sir, but, but does that mean everything? Everything that is in us can go on to the mountains? Nothing. Not even the best and noblest can go on now as it is. Nothing, not even what is lowest and most bestial will be raised again, will not be raised again if it submits to death. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Flesh and blood cannot come to the mountains because they are too rank. Not because they are too rank, but because they are too weak. What is a lizard compared with a stallion? Lust is a poor, weak, whimpering, whispering thing compared with the richness and energy of desire which will arise when lust has been killed. Lewis was making the point that evil is a corruption of the good not an equal opposite to the good. And so killing becomes a part of transforming. 
And so when Jesus says we must hate our own lives, we must yield and surrender every part. Now, this particular ghost struggled with lust. And the angel says, let me kill it. Let me transform it, is what he's saying. And in the moment that he does, there's a, a, a brief moment of pain But in the transformation process, God's able to transform and to use that which worked against him to yield to that which worked for him. May we be willing to kill and let transformed every part of us that would help us to follow Jesus. You see, paying that cost is crucial. The angel understood. The lizard didn't belong in the mountains. He was not ready. And the man couldn't go with the lizard. And so he had to transform him, had to kill him in order that he might be transformed and changed. You see, to live a resurrected life, we must allow Christ to kill, transform us. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I now live by faith in the Son of God. Killed, you see. Dead man walking. Transformed into something far different, far better. You see, counting the cost is important, but paying the cost is crucial. Total surrender is what leads us to deepest impact. Verses 34 and 35, salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Again, with our study in Luke, we're trying to, to keep the text all together because there's a reason we, we divide it all up. But, but you understand that before we got to the cost of discipleship, Jesus was explaining in uh, chapter 14, verses uh, Oh, 16 through 24, he says there are many people who are invited to follow Jesus. Indeed, the whole world, you might say, has been invited to the banquet, but few will attend. Why? Because the cost is too high. Why won't they come? Well, they make excuses. They, they, They sell themselves short. And so Jesus says, for I tell you, none of the men who were invited shall taste my banquet. And then he immediately steps into turning to the crowds and saying, if you want to follow me, you've got to renounce every part of your life that you love and lay it down to the one who loves you. That will cost you, but is the only way. At the end of this section, Jesus says salt. He starts talking about salt. Salt is good. Now, you've heard sermons. I've heard them too and probably given some. Uh, about salt and how it compares to the Christian life, and it, it seasons things and it, and it preserves things. Yes, we know that. But but there's another aspect that I found to this idea of salt, salt of the earth. In the ancient world, there was a practice when one kingdom would conquer another kingdom, they would salt the area around it as a symbol, as a sign that that area had been conquered and that those who lived in it were yielding to another king. I like that. I don't know if that's exactly what Jesus meant when he referred, but surely the idea was in mind to some, that the salt meant that someone had totally surrendered to the king. Now, salt is also seasoning. It makes something good even better. But here's another thing that salt does. It makes us 
thirsty for more? Is your life lived in a way that has any, any salt to it? Does it, does, it, does it make people thirsty to want what you have? To, to see a surrendered life and that desiring to follow Jesus and, and saying, well, what they have is what I want. That's what I want for me. A Christian, you see, who has lost their salt isn't really worth their salt. May we not... May we not do as Jesus said, it is of no, if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use. May our lives be salt, which, which draw out a thirst in people for something that this, is, that this world cannot satisfy or quench. The opposite of salt might be bland unnoticeable, boring, insipid, tasteless, tame, tedious. There's so many people just living their lives paycheck to paycheck, paying bills and and assuming, is this all there is to life? Jesus invites them to so much more, to so much to so many higher and greater and nobler things. But it begins with this tremendous cost. And if we'll yield to him totally and completely and surrender our lives, it's one of the best adventures ever. I used the picture of the roller coaster this morning of, of the, the, the analogy to our faith and trusting God. But you, you know, when, uh, and every roller coaster ride I've ever been on, there's this, you know, it's the thrill, it's the upside down, it's the twists and the turns. They had Church of Christ uh, weekend in Branson this weekend. And so if some of you went, I don't know, or most of them are still there. But, but the roller coasters are, are fun because it's the thrill, it's the excitement, it's the getting your heart racing, it's the adrenaline pumping. But then there's always at the end, you can feel like the last, and you're just like, whoo. And I hope the day of my death is like that. I hope it's such a great, grand adventure. And as I enter into heaven's glory, it's like the end of a great ride. It will be if we trust him, if we yield to him, and mostly if we surrender to him. You see, we're to be the salt. Now, I I, want to say just one word real quickly. We're called to be salt, not to be salty. Don't be the, the angriest person in your, in, your, in your work group. Don't be the, the bitterest, unkind, most critical, uh, most judgmental. Of, and that's not what Jesus meant at all about being salt. He calls us to be salt, not salt E. Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. There's a lifestyle, there's a way of living that draws people and makes them thirst. For more, So maybe we surrender our lives in total, full, complete, absolute, unequivocated surrender to him. And it's those lives and only those lives which are salt, which draw out thirst of those who are around. May we then count the cost, pay the price, and surrender to him fully. I'm going to ask you, are you a fan of Jesus or a totally devoted follower. You follow him when it's convenient, when it's expected, out of routine. You know, 
carve out this hour here and carve out this hour here and, and do a few things sprinkled in here? Or are you surrendered to Jesus in all things? Uh, may we surrender our lives fully and totally, completely. And this morning, if you are, this evening, this evening, if you are ready to begin the process of full and total surrender, I will tell you it is the best decision you can ever make here on this earth. But make no mistake. It is the costliest. And Jesus said, it will cost you everything. And yet it's a cost worth paying. Because it pales in comparison to the glory to be revealed in us. But if, if you're ready to follow Jesus, understand it comes with a cost. Because of its great, great value. If you haven't made that worthwhile decision... If you, aren't ready, if you are ready to begin living a life fully surrendered, or if you haven't been and you need to repent in a public way, the invitation, not mine, but his, stands tonight. As we sing this final song, if you wish to respond in a public way, meet me down front. Uh, we'll meet together and pray together and help you in any way that we can to begin living a surrendered life, to begin counting the cost because we know the value. If you need to come tonight, please do. As together we stand and sing.